It's week four of the official podcast for the ABC show, The Crossing, where each week we'll discuss what you just saw and explore the science behind the fiction. And who better to do that than the creators of The Crossing, Dan Dorkin and JBD. Hi, guys. Hello, Jason. Hello, Jason. And joining us this week is futurist, super inventor, hacker, and all-around genius, Pablos Holman. Hey, Pablos. Hey there. What's a super inventor? I want to get to that in just a few minutes. But first, I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson and Jay and Dan. This is the first time that we've actually had a chance to talk about a major endorsement that you guys got from a guy who knows a thing or two about suspense and plot twists and story. Stephen King uh, tweeting that your show is damn good, calling the opening of the first episode jaw-dropping, strange and beautiful. Uh, He talked about how your immigration subtext was sly and carefully crafted. And he also loved the classic Chevelle in episode two. That was a Chevelle, yes? That was a Chevelle, Okay. Yes. So what does it mean to have a guy like him paying such close attention to the show? Uh, it, was, it was great. Our, our, my email and phone started blowing up with people saying, have you seen this? Have you seen this? So it was, uh, it was very good. And I was doubly excited because there was actually a line in the pilot that I kind of took from... One of his short story, the short story he wrote called The Jaunt in Night Shift, like in 1980, 1979. Yeah. I read it when I read the story when I was 12. And there's this, the line at the end of the story is it, it's longer than you think. It's about a teleportation slash kind of time travel system. And so there's a line that Lindauer has at the end of the pilot on the bridge when Thomas says, how long have you been here? And he says, longer than you think. In my mind, that was always from The Jaunt. So I, I said, I have to tell him now he's opened up this door. I have to tell him. And I was able to dash off an email to his agent who forwarded it to him, and he, he emailed me back, and that was a, a... I could basically... Yeah, I could die happy now. It's cool. That's, <laughs> that's really cool. To have, that, to have that in there and then to have him... Did he, did he notice the line and the reference? No, no. No, because it's a pretty general line. Sure. And even when he emailed me back, he didn't even... <laughs> he kind of didn't even acknowledge what I'd said about the <laughs> jaunt. It was just more... He was talking about, like, you got a good show, and he was very complimentary. It was a very brief email exchange. He's got a lot of emails to send, I think. That's so, cool. but it was cool. That's it, it. it was a shock to me when I somebody texted it to me, and at first I thought it was fake. You know, somebody was, <laughs> you know, fake Stephen King Russian bot on Twitter. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, this to have him watch the second episode and tweet again. Um, yeah, he's into it. I mean, so yeah, not just it was like just. That's two episodes. Yeah, it's he's it's, hooked. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so for the as for the actual episode now, uh, I mean we got to start at the end because you guys are leaving these cliffhangers now. So we meet uh, Paul's wife, Eve. Yes. Uh, she was her proper name from the future is Eve. Yeah, she actually goes. I, mean, I don't think we mention it in the episode, but her name here in this time is Greta. But for all intents and purposes, she's Eve. Okay. And for for my purposes, as somebody who watches a lot of TV, is you know part time TV critic and works in this industry, I know she's going to be important because she's played by Melinda McGraw, right? Who's been who's a TV veteran. You don't hire her for just you know to show up at the end of an episode and that's it. Right. Um, so we and she shoots Agent Ren there at the end. I mean, she yes, does. she does. That's <laughs> Shoots her right in the right. back. <laughs> pretty much out of nowhere. Pretty surprising. Are you guys now plotting so that you end each episode with something major? Is that like a, a, a conscious thing? It, it's conscious. I mean, it's it's something you want to achieve in every episode, I think. you know. And, and we're conscious of also going into act breaks because we're, you know, we have commercial breaks. Right. And that's how we've always been, you know, trained as writers. And so um, we've always admired shows too. I think that you know could leave you with a great cliffhanger, um, leave you wanting more. You know, give you something to talk about, and kind of 
mull over for the week. You have to wait until the show comes back. It's definitely a shocking moment for sure. Yeah. I mean, when you guys are writing it, are you guys like, yeah, we got this one. We know this is going to get the people. I think I think we, we we thought it would definitely get people, but then when the scene, the, it really came together nicely with the the writing of it and the 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 way it was directed. It's definitely one of my not just because of the twist and the cliffhanger element, but just the way it was all put together. It was one of my favorite scenes that we did all year. I think the acting between between Sandrine and, and Melinda in that scene when they're sitting and talking is great, and that dialogue is so nice, and, and just, it's a beautiful, it's just, it's just the way it was put together. Yeah. It's it, very nice. It, it's so good that I'm, I'm then thinking, well, maybe he was part of a cult. Maybe none of this is that, actually, it wasn't convincing. That is the idea. Like, yeah. if, if we can, if, if other, I love that about it. That's what, when I was watching it for the first time, I had that reaction too. Like, in the middle of the scene, I said, wait, I, I kind of, I know what's real and what's not here, obviously, <laughs> as the creator the of the show. show. And even yeah. I, because, and, you know, in part be, just because of the, the dialogue and certainly because of the performances, you kind of get sucked into what Melinda's saying. And you're like, wait a second. <laughs> you're rethinking it. Is this all some sham? Like, it's, it's, it's interesting. You rethink everything. And that's, that's good. I'm glad you had that reaction. That's what that you is want. totally when heartening. We were, when we were hatching it, I mean, we, there were discussions about whether or not we could make that scene the entire act. You know, just yeah. that last sixth act. Could we really dig into that scene? And Evan Blywise, uh, who wrote the episode, did a terrific job. Uh, and in this episode, also, we have this now new pairing of uh, we have Supermom Reese, and she is with uh, Dr. Dr. Scar. What's her? Stephanie, right? <laughs> Dr. Stephanie. She has an open heart surgery yes, scar. Dr. Sophie Dr. Forbin. Sophie Forbin, yeah. Yeah, so, so the two of them are now, they've been brought together by Jude to try to save and, you know, to help uh, the daughter. I like the pairing of them together because they seem like very two very tough women who have a goal, but, and their goal is in the end the same, to save the girl, but they're going about it in two very different uh, ways, right? Well, and a bonus that um, Georgina, who plays Sophie, is blonde. So we finally have a, a, a show, a, a female character who is not olive skinned and brunette. So that's, that's I've, nice. I've seen a little bit on the internet that people are people comparing are, all the all the female well because people leads now together. have theories, and I, I I mean stay with your theories. I don't want to dissuade anyone from having theories, <laughs> but like that that there's some sort of connection that that maybe like Sandrine is actually a distant ancestor of. Oh. Reese or something like that. And I'm like, okay. It's a, a blessing and a curse. Our research in talking to futurists was about, you know, globalization and, and how races will intermingle mm-hmm. and how everybody in the future is pretty much going to look like they're from Brazil. And so, <laughs> but unfortunately for television, it, sometimes it can be a little hard to tell people it, apart. Sure, it makes it tough <laughs> on a TV show. Um, so we have the two of them together. We also learned that uh, uh, Supermom Reese, not only can she fix a car just out of nowhere, uh, she has the skills to do that. She can cast a rod like super far. She's a fantastic fisherwoman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it fun to kind of come up with these like secret hidden powers that she might be able to do in everyday life and go, Oh, she can, she can do this the best of anybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and because we don't, we never wanted her to have like a slate of, you know, comic book type superpowers. It's nice to find those organic moments within the story where we can show something like that and add a bit of humor. So that was fun. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And the, uh, how long did you think, or did you have a, a sense of how long we wanted to take the kidnapping double cross together? Um, did we want to, was there ever a thought of carrying that out through, you know, maybe several episodes? It, briefly, but I think the longer you carry that out, the worse Reese looks, you know, and I don't think she's, she, you know, we, we took, 
uh, we tried to protect her character in that way. Gotcha. So the kidnapping of Ollie was, in his mind, he wasn't necessarily being kidnapped, but you know, he's really sure. being babysat because his dad got pulled away on a, on a My dad's police business. Super right? girlfriend. Yeah. The other um, thing we wanted to also start moving away, I mean, this is episode four now, and we've been in for a couple episodes, this caper kind of action caper mode mm-hmm. in the show, like with... Starting, I guess, with Reese, the the Black Ops team coming after Reese at the end of episode two at the dock, and then continuing through episode three in the woods, where she's it's that's our first blood episode, and now it's a kidnapping episode. So we want to kind of wrap that up and kind of evolve into something else, which is what starts with her and Sophie, and now we're kind of moving into something different. Gotcha. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm sure you guys uh, talked to Pablo's Holman, so I want to bring him into the mix and talk to you, uh, Dan and Jay. First, what was it that you guys used Pablo's for in your research? Why did you go to him? Our producer, Jason Reed, was affili- uh, affiliated with the National Academy of Sciences, the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And that's where we, um, were rec- that we were linked up with certain experts in their field. And we specifically needed to talk to someone who was a futurist and somebody who was dealing in you know, the future of, of, of all things tech. And Pablo's name rose to the top very quickly as an inventor and futurist. And we watched some of his TED Talks and you know, immediately reached out. And we had just a, I mean, this was over a year ago now, but we, we spent quite a bit of time on the phone with him. And it was, like I've said in previous podcasts, we were able to kind of cherry pick a few things and lay them in, into the episodes. Um, and it was, it was great. So we're very happy to talk to him again. Yeah, it's really <laughs> nice to talk to you again, Pablo. Thanks. Um, That's it's super fun. Um, so the, the, I guess just to start, and this is something we've touched on before, but since you are at the forefront of, of this idea or technology, I guess, We've mentioned the notion of uh, 3D printing food or, or growing our food uh, in labs, not uh, taking them from, from, from real animals, from livestock in the future. Right. You're into that technology right now, right? Well, there's, you're talking about kind of two separate classes of technology. So the first one is, you know, can we grow meat in a lab um, without the animal? And, um, and a lot of work is being done on that right now and we're getting really you know to a point where we can make very compelling meat and it's actually just meat and it's the same stuff you eat now it just didn't grow on an animal with bones um the problems and mostly have to do with how do you scale that um into a into a product or be able to do it a large enough scale that you could actually sell it to a lot of people and be competitive with the cost structure of existing meat production which is you know, a very low margin business. And it's, uh, there's not a lot of, you know, it's, it's very difficult to bring any new technology to the market when you're competing with something that's super cheap. And essentially that's where we're at with meat because we've got it running at massive economies of scale and, and that. So, um, but there's amazing stuff going on and I've, I've seen, you know, multiple different companies that are making a go at it from different angles. Um, and so I really do believe, and that's that's what I think I said to you guys. You know, I do believe that we'll think it's barbaric that we ever ate eat off, meat off of animals. Um, and I hope that we get there in our lifetime, but it might take a little longer. What do you think is the biggest hurdle for something like that? Is it the people actually adopting those principles? Because I mean, it's a at this point, it's seen as an ethical or moral choice or environmental. Yeah, right. So the the interesting thing, at least for you know Americans in general. Um, you know, they're sort of creeped out by the idea of 
you know, meat grown in a test tube or a lab or something, that sounds weird. Um, but they have competing instinct, which is that they've gotten much more concerned about the environmental cost of, you know, of, of cattle, which is pretty extreme. Um, you know, we estimate, you know, some estimates are 20, 30 percent of atmospheric carbon or not carbon, but uh, greenhouse gases, which includes methane. That's what comes out the back end of a cow. That stuff is pretty bad for the environment, um, and then they just eat up. You, you know, they use up a lot of land and these right. and a lot of resources. And they're inefficient way of making food. So, um, the environmental cost of cows and, and livestock in general is high, and and so people are tuned into that. And then, of course, um, the ethical dilemma of you know, knowing that something had to die to feed you, and um, we we don't have the same. Um, empathy for vegetables that we do for <laughs> for cows and so we'd rather uh, you know i think um find ways to kill less animals um and uh, maybe someday not kill any of them just for food so that's the rough idea i think as far as adoption the hard part is almost always how do you um compete on a cost basis with a new technology because we're going to give up on you know if you think it's creepy to eat lab grown meat, you know, we're not going to feed you. We're just going to feed your kids. And that's how, that's how these things always find their way into the market because right. your kids will grow up thinking it's normal and they already eat, you know, weird stuff that doesn't seem like food to you. Um, you know, they'll eat, I don't know, cliff bars and, you know, <laughs> fruit roll ups and stuff that just doesn't make sense. Um, and so, uh, a lot of times when you're trying to introduce something that people have a you know, weird feeling about you just let them grow old and die and feed their kids <laughs> or oh, sell it to them. I wonder, like, it, it, this might seem like a dumb question, but when I, when we think, uh, when I think of someone printing, when I think of 3D yeah. printers, I think of MakerBot, right. I think of consumer sure. grade printers. So, so I'm having yeah. a vision in my head of, of a time in the future where it goes not just from companies with factories that are printing meat, but to people having something akin to a microwave in their home that prints meat for them, which is the, yeah. more, the more Jetsons model, I guess. That's yeah, and the and the key thing there to understand that's another one where, um, you know, that's the one that I worked on, which is, could we adapt 3D printers or other kinds of robots to prepare meals, and this turns out to be the kind of thing that, you know, a decade ago when I first started working on it, everyone thought it sounded crazy, but now every year it sounds a little less crazy, which is why it, it sort of almost makes sense to you, and the reason is. Um, that when you look at how we feed people right now, there's a massive amount of inefficiency, right? And it's not at farms. You know, agriculture, um, farmers are pretty good at, you know, getting all the food they can out of their land. Um, sure. The inefficiency is in what I call the last mile, and that's basically between the store and your mouth. Hmm. And, you know, Americans are very inefficient there, right? You go to, you, you know, you drive to the store in your SUV, fill up a cart full of stuff, bring it home, put it in the fridge. You're like throwing out packaging and lamb bones and lettuce cores in a dumpster out back. You're cooking enough food for like two people. Half of it goes in the fridge for to become leftovers that you throw out a week later. You know, we throw out 40% of our food before we ever even eat it in America. Wow. And, um, and, and that's, you know, when you talk about sustainability in any on any axis like that's probably one of the biggest ones because everybody eats 
every day. Um, so this problem compounds on itself every day. And so the problem is worse because most of the rest of the world is trying to figure out how they get to eat more like Americans, right? right. We have so much meat in our diet. We have so much variety. It's pretty deluxe. And, um, and when you look at what's happening with the, the, the world as people get a little bit more money, they spend it on more meat and more variety in their diet. So the point of using 3D printers to print food is that you could start to prepare meals and that are, um, that are much more efficient, right? So the, the way I would describe it is, you know, you just imagine a machine that has three buttons on it. You know, what I ate yesterday, what Beyonce likes, and I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> I'm feeling lucky. And you push one of those buttons, the machine would have frozen or dried and powdered food in toner cartridges that, uh, you know, it, and then the machine would take a pixel of wheat, put it down, hydrate it with a needle, zap it with a laser to cook it, rinse and repeat for every pixel. And it's making a meal that's customized for you, right? So now it's avoiding your allergens and dietary restrictions and injecting your pharmaceuticals. And it's making a meal that's just right for you. If you've got to get off sodium, we'll drop it by a milligram a day for months and you'll never feel it happening. There's things like that that are possible once the machines are preparing the meals. And you know, that, all that sort of sounds weird to people because they have very romantic view of food and they like to pretend like they're having this beautiful Thanksgiving dinner with all their friends and family every day. And they're not, you know, most, what I, what I imagine is, you know, these machines will start to replace the, the worst meal of your week. Right. <laughs> right. And then what happens over time, it, because this is a machine, you know, like what I've described has generates no local waste, right? You're shipping all your ingredients the way we currently ship wheat. Wheat is a dried and powdered ingredient that lives in your kitchen. Nobody wants to eat wheat out of the bag, though. Hmm. So what, 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 what chefs are doing is managing texture, right? That's almost entirely what cooking is about, right? Flavor, aroma, nutrition, you can get all those in a bottle. But what texture do is, is turning wheat into French bread, right? It's turning... These, these unpalatable ingredients into something you actually want to eat. And that's a lot of work for a chef. And so what we need to make are machines that can turn powders into something compelling. Is, is this, this technology something you're actively working on right now? Well, no, I, I'm trying to invent on about a 10-year horizon. And so that's what I worked on 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hoping... That, you know, and, and now there are companies trying to make 3D printers for food and things like that. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is aim my sights on what we can do, uh, you know, a decade from now. And that's just a lot different than the work being done at almost every other company, right? Most people have to work on inventing a faster, cheaper version of whatever they did last year. And I don't have to do that. I get to work further in the future, which just means I'm more likely to be wrong. <laughs> but... Um, but I also get to get to play with what's technically possible. Can you tell us what specifically that is? Yeah, I was going to ask, what are some oh, of the yeah. things you're working on right now? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we have a whole bunch of uh, uh, projects here at the lab um, that are pretty futuristic. One area that we're really getting a lot of um, um, 
you know, amazing results out of is this new area in science called metamaterials. Um, and these are materials that don't exist in nature. I mean, it really seems like science fiction, but they give us the ability, we can manufacture these materials that give us the ability to manipulate waves of any description, but we're primarily using that for electromagnetic waves. And so we can make incredible antennas and sensors and things that couldn't be done before. And so uh, we've been spinning out companies to commercialize this. And the first one has actually just hit the market. It's called Chimeta. And we make an antenna that's a, uh, that replaces a satellite dish, the big gimbaled satellite dish you'd see on a, on a boat or a plane or a car. Um, we replace that with a flat panel and it can electronically steer a beam. And so now we're using those antennas in other applications. We're using them in cellular to do uh, wireless communication. It's a way to get gigabit wireless to everyone on the planet, which no one else knows how to do. Um, but we use the same technology now to make radars for self-driving cars and drones um, so they can see other vehicles and things for collision avoidance. Um, normal radar you couldn't fit on a on a mm. drone it's too heavy and too big and too power hungry so those that's a that's an area that we're super excited about just because um we were able to develop it from the scientific research stage into a bunch of cool inventions it's like having a new superpower um, but so the that... lab is also developing a new type of nuclear reactor that's powered by nuclear waste um we, famously, we invented a machine that can find mosquitoes and shoot them down with laser beams. Right, that one's cool. I've seen, I've seen the video of that. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, wait, that signet. exists. That actually slow-mo video. I can shoot yeah, the wing then, off like, of right a now. Mosquito. Yeah, that's, it's a good video if you haven't seen it. It's Ooh, it's a very rewarding cool. work if you can get it shooting down mosquitoes with lasers. <laughs> There's um, uh, I'm working on this project. We started a long time ago. One of our inventors here came up with a a. a he got in an elevator and somebody sneezed on the panel of buttons <laughs> just as he was about to push the button. And so he invented a self-sterilizing elevator button, which is, <laughs> if you think about it, the most shared surface in a building is probably the up button on the lobby level. Um, wow. So this button um, just kills bacteria that's on it so that it doesn't become a, a transmission vector for diseases. And especially if you think about hospitals and things, it's, it's super gross. Um, sharing surfaces. So, um, so it, when we first worked on this project, like eight years ago, um, we tried to make the button, but it was like cost like five thousand dollars to make one button because of all the because um, the the ultraviolet LEDs we needed at the time were too exotic, and so we knew they'd just get cheaper in time. So we just waited. Eight years later, they're cheap. It costs a lot less to make that button now, and so um, I'm. We're building another one in the lab, and hopefully, uh, hopefully before long, we'll get some elevator company to start deploying them. Can that I mean, can that technology expand to including yeah. like like touchscreen surfaces? Exactly. On, on... Yes, exact same technology. You know, if you think about the square readers, with people have you check out with your credit card and iPad. Yeah. And you're signing with your finger. Those must be disgusting. It's oh, disgusting. Yeah. I mean, if you if <laughs> or you at the culture. airport, at the airport, the the uh, check-in kiosks. Yeah, like, can right. you imagine? Yeah. So we can actually oh, yeah. make those screens, those touchscreens, self-sterilizing, so that they don't transmit that's, any anything. That's worthy. Yeah, because yeah, you I'll do that it. with your passport at international airports. So people are coming yeah. in from all over the world, mm-hmm. touching those same yep. screens. Foreign yep. germs, domestic yep. germs. Mean, it, I'm wearing surgical gloves next time I go to Canada. It's exactly you come. You're coming <laughs> off of. 
you come in <laughs> off of a plane from Asia with avian flu, and like the first thing you do is like share all your crap. Yeah. Nice. Well, I can't wait for uh, season two of The Crossing and the elevator button episode. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. Oh, it's yeah. come That's a good one. We could put it in an episode easily. Uh, and all of you out there listening, we want you to know we want you to be a part of this. So please send us your questions on Twitter using the hashtag The Crossing Podcast. That's hashtag The Crossing Podcast. And guys, that's enough time. Uh, we're out of time for this week. So I want to say The Crossing Podcast is a production of Brick Moon Fiction. Thanks to the creators of the show, Dan Dworkin and Jay Beattie, for being here today. Thanks, man. Thanks, and Pablos. to our guest, Pablos, as well. My pleasure. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson, and we'll cross paths next week. <laughs>